we kind of like to use the metaphor where in Web3 it's more about uh, kind of um, like it's very similar to a nightclub as an analogy. So kind of uh, for a nightclub to be enjoyable for people, it means that those who behave badly enough should be kicked out of there so that the other people will have fun in there. But at the same time, uh, if you end up kicked out of one nightclub for one rowdy night, it doesn't mean that you're banned from uh, all nightclubs and seeing your friends. But it's typically kind of um, like a in, like kind of restricted incident in that sense. And that means that every nightclub can choose their customers. Similarly, every social front end can choose their customers. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. Today on the show, I have Jonathan Lintala. He is the CEO of Favor, which is a decentralized uh, Web3 based social media uh, network. It uh, is part of the Lens Protocol, uh, which is a project by Aave. Uh, the Lens Protocol is um, hoping to encourage truly decentralized applications uh, to, and then where you can port from one uh, application like a Twitter-like uh, service like Favor over to something else and you're always keeping your social media um, output and what you're putting online uh, to yourself. So you can't be banned from Twitter and lose 10 years worth of um, tweets and interactions and your community. Jonathan came from um, a background in ad tech. Uh, he was at Google and then was at a startup and kind of saw the other side of um, the ad um, world as it applies online um, and all the kind of dirty stuff that goes on with uh, data getting collected and harvested and sold. Um, so we talked a lot about that and we talked about how Favor is hoping to uh, change that system by giving its users control over their privacy, um, about what kind of content they want to see and um, all sorts of other aspects including ownership of that um, content that they're putting out on the protocol. Uh, so it's something that is growing in popularity. Uh, Favor now has about 180,000 users. I believe it's in a whitelist phase right now. It's not gone mainnet yet, but uh, if you can check it out, I highly recommend it. I'm going to do the same. So with all of that, let's get to the conversation. Thanks. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, uh, all good here. Uh, very glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, where am I talking to you from today? Uh, I'm in Helsinki, Finland. Okay, excellent. Uh, is that um, where you're from? Uh, yes, uh, that's where I'm from and where I'm based currently. I've been living all around, so I was living in New York for a few years, etc., but uh, end up always coming back to Finland. Yeah. Yeah, the home has a draw, doesn't it? Um, and by the way, happy St. Patrick's Day. We're recording this on uh, March 17th. So anyway, uh, I, I just wanted to kind of uh, start at the beginning and, and ask, um, you know, did, did you grow up in Helsinki or, or what part of Finland were you raised in? I did, yeah, kind of uh, in the capital region uh, around uh, Helsinki for pretty much all of my uh, youth. And then during my studies, I've been living uh, abroad a little bit in Canada and Germany, and then later working in uh, Ireland and uh, the U.S., so been a bit all around, but then every time I come back, it's just back to Helsinki. Yeah. Um, and do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, I have one uh, brother as well. 
okay. is working uh, as a chef, so a bit of a different profession compared to a startup. Oh, wow. Cool. So you can give him crypto advice and he can make you a really good dinner. Yeah, he's actually been asking a lot of uh, stuff about what he should be investing in, and I tell him I have no clue, like nobody knows anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. And we can sort of judge, I think, the top and the bottom in cycles by how many family members are coming to us with questions, right? Pretty much, and how upset they are. <laughs> yeah, I, I told some people a while ago that I thought they should buy Coinbase stock, and uh, I look like an idiot for a while, but luckily it's, it's coming back around a little bit. Um, but I definitely try not to give people advice because I, like you said, I have no idea what's going on and what's going to be next. But what was it like growing up in Helsinki? Uh, what were you like as a kid? Um, Helsinki is a great place to grow up. Uh, overall, like Finland is a very uh, nice, safe, uh, easy place uh, to grow up. And you get free education and all that. So kind of um, really couldn't complain. I got to do um, like good business uh, school and everything uh, paid by the government. So being kind of um, very happy growing up here. Was always kind of a business-minded guy. So founded uh, like three companies already during my studies that didn't really amount to much, but were kind of uh, good early kind of uh, testing grounds as well for entrepreneurship. Yeah. What, um, what makes you think or what, why do you think you were business-minded kind of from the get-go? I don't know. I guess my parents are kind of also um, sort of um, in the sort of business field overall. And uh, somehow that was just always uh, the most interesting stuff for me. So figuring out uh, creative ways to uh, either make money or solve some needs uh, somewhere and always thinking of like what could be done better in a way. Uh -huh. What do your parents do? Um, they're in... Um, like, uh, well, my dad's in advertising. Uh, Mom's been doing a long career in uh, IT, so. Okay. And I noticed um, on your resume that that's sort of where you started off and was, was advertising. Is that right? Uh, yeah, kind of after uh, the business school studies, uh, I was figuring out, like, after having a couple of uh, random companies of my own, I need to look employable and apply somewhere that looks like a real business. So applied to Google and luckily they uh, got me an internship that then turned into a full-time job and was there for a couple of years. And then kind of realized like, okay, this is still way too much of a corporation for me. And if Google is too corporate, then probably like every other big company will be as well. So just decided yeah. to give up on the corporate path. And I think you were at Google during the don't be evil period. Yeah, back when they were at least trying not to be evil still. <laughs> yeah, right. Was there something about advertising that appealed to you? Uh, like, what, were you on the creative side, or what? What, what role did you have in that? Uh, so I was uh, on the Google side. I was in the account management, so helping big uh, customers like banks and airlines and travel companies uh, advertise uh, through the Google system, and kind of just sort of ended up there and realized that I'm pretty good at uh, taking care of customers and analyzing data and telling them kind of uh, what comes out of that. But at the same time, always kind of uh, had this uh, sort of feeling that we're definitely not making the world any better by very invasively targeting people and getting them to buy stuff that they don't necessarily need. Hmm. But uh, you got to make money somehow. Yeah, that's true. Um, I read somewhere, I think it was a bio of you, um, that you, you uh, are making amends for your Web2 world. I don't know if those were your words or not, but uh, that, that kind of stuck out to me, I guess, from the advertising side. Yeah, so that's kind of one of the ideas now where sort of uh, after Google, I was uh, working on Facebook advertising uh, and ad tech for another five years. 
and saw kind of firsthand um, how efficient but also super invasive the models of Web2 are. And at the same time, not really sharing any of that value and revenue uh, with the people who create the values or the creators and the moderators and everybody else in that equation. So that was kind of uh, like a kickstart also for why we ended up founding favor, trying to figure out kind of how to build more responsible, more ethical social media for kind of the next generation. Yeah, can we, um, let's dive into a little bit about the Web2 world first. Just, I'm not sure a lot of people quite understand how invasive it can be. Um, you were on the inside there. Can you just kind of walk me through what the classic Web2 companies like Google and, you know, I, I won't put words in your mouth, but, you know, Facebook and all the, all the others, Apple and, and Amazon. What are the ways that, what, what do you mean by the invasive part? Can you just shed some light on that? Yep. So um, I guess um, some people have been putting it uh, kind of, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And in yeah. a lot of cases, uh, that is kind of what's happening where like Google's baseline advertising of AdWords is obviously like a very genius setup where you type in that you need X and then it's either an advertisement or an organic search result. And they wouldn't actually have to know anything else about you except that you're searching for this. But then they have ended up going a lot deeper. So already back then, like a decade ago, Google was able to, with uh, around a 90-something percent accuracy, uh, forecast your age in a five-year bucket based on your browser behavior that was then used for targeting. And for example, your Gmail was uh, targetable based on your inbox content. So you could target people based on if they received emails from this domain or this person, show them uh, this kind of an advertisement. Oh, really? I didn't know. Oh, wow. I've never heard that they were scanning Gmail inboxes. Yeah, just like Facebook is scanning your messenger discussions in order to uh, oh. kind of um, target advertising based on those. So pretty much everything they use for free ends up being uh, kind of data mined for advertising. And not only that, is, is it Google itself or are they like there's third parties that want to get involved, right, and buy that information on different users for their own uses? Yeah, and that's kind of where it gets very problematic. Like, obviously, Facebook and Google don't really kind of explicitly sell that information because uh, it's the way that they make money. But then if, if we saw what happened with, for example, Cambridge Analytica a few years back, um, there have been kind of very abusive ways of uh, kind of finding that data and using it to even, like, affect elections and things like that. And what is, I know you've been out of it for a little while, but... What is the full picture that these companies can get on people just from their online usage? Is it like 360, you know, on like this person as a consumer or what they're into, what they're searching for? Like, how detailed do you think those digital profiles are that, that these companies have access to? Yeah, well, there's been real world examples where Facebook knew that you're pregnant before you knew it yourself. <laughs> so they can get very kind of accurate with um, their forecasting. Uh, Facebook, for example, does have a uh, targeting uh, based on the age of your children, and they somehow are able to kind of decipher that from uh, your behavior on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp uh, within, again, like a five-year age bracket of um, is this person a parent of a toddler or a preteen or a teenager? Um, and all these kinds of things that can be inferred from there. So a lot of people will say to that, well, that's fine. I'm not doing anything wrong, right? Uh, if they're not doing anything wrong, we have to, you know, make that caveat. But some, you know, some people will say, hey, that, that's just, I guess that's what I give up by using Google and the convenience of it all. But is, is that a good way to think about this? 
I think, yeah, as long as it's voluntary, and I think that's one of the key things that we are aiming to also bring people is the choice. So um, obviously things like the GDPR legislation, the uh, European Union tried to bring that um, kind of uh, choice to people, like, would you like to use cookies or not? But the cookies are just very much the tip of the iceberg. So even if you keep clicking no everywhere, like Facebook will still know everything about you um, and things like that. So we think that uh, the right and ethical way to do that would be to ask people, like, are you willing to be tracked? And that would show you more relevant advertising. And also what we're aiming to do is kind of give some sort of revenue share through our token economy for the people who opt into that and kind of want to be part of that advertising ecosystem. Then if you don't, uh, then we would not be kind of doing any tracking beyond the things you voluntarily are giving. Yeah. I'd like to have a word with them about the cookies thing because it's just gotten to be a headache. But as a privacy, you know, person, I I get it. Um, And then... It's also interesting, you know, having my own business now and seeing the reach of what Google Analytics can do for like our website, for example, and other things is is really rather eye-opening. And I I would imagine that is, again, just the tip of the iceberg on what they have. Was there a moment where you, like, when did you first feel like maybe I'm not doing, you know, as much as I could for the world? Was it while you were at Google? Yeah, I think it's always been sort of that nagging feeling where, um, like, it's not like uh, I have some kind of, uh, like, massive mission to save the world or things like that. But I think kind of overall would be uh, nice to do something that actually has kind of a positive impact overall. And uh, if I'm anyway using, like, I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I'm anyway using 50, 60 hours a week on whatever I end up doing. So would much rather do it um, in a way where it actually benefits Uh, kind of uh, the wider society in some way. And with the advertising side, you're obviously kind of, uh, you're making money for brands uh, that in some way trickle down with tax uh, dollars and euros and and stuff like that. But like you have to kind of uh, be very creative to justify kind of uh, the benefits of what you're doing. Yeah, I don't think advertising gets that benefit of the doubt very often. Um, So when you have that realization, what do you do? Like what's the next step? Um, yeah, so I think kind of for years, I ended up uh, ignoring it and kind of figured that this is always uh, like kind of I'm where I'm supposed to be kind of gathering the experience and networks and everything else to be able to do something um, kind of more meaningful in the future. And I think that's kind of a good way of thinking about things like if you jump straight out of college and you try to do something massive, you're probably going to be failing because you just don't have the experience yet. Um, and in a way, it's uh, always easier to learn essentially on somebody else's dime first. So kind of working first at Google and then in a startup that um, was uh, just a few people when I joined and then grew to be hundreds of people and a global market leader in the ad tech was a great way of kind of gathering that experience. And then uh, after five years of that, I realized like, okay, now is actually uh, the time when I should be starting something of my own. And um, uh, um, before we get there, what was that startup doing after you left Google? Uh, yeah, so um, that was um, an advertising technology platform for Facebook and Instagram targeting. So um, big clients like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Spotify uh, were running uh, their Facebook and Instagram ads um, through uh, that SaaS platform. And I was uh, kind of uh, building the early sales team and then scaling it up uh, first in Europe. And then I moved to New York to scale it up for a few years. So a lot of interesting stuff anyway, but 
Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, great experience. And I think it's important for people to know, you know, as many sides of their industry as they can. Um, when you were doing that at the startup, did you, had it come out yet that there was like issues here or was that before? Um, I mean, you mentioned Cambria Analytica. Um, I can't remember the years of that exactly, but had you, was there an inkling about that? I, or is that like before um, people started to sort of take notice of this? Yes, so I think kind of uh, the time we started that uh, and I joined was uh, just when Facebook had listed publicly. And that's kind of when uh, there was the big tipping point where they started putting a lot more effort into advertising, into targeting and all that. And then over the years, there were a couple of um, sort of uh, bigger moves. So obviously the Cambridge Analytica scandal was one of those that um, sort of uh, put Facebook um, on the billboard uh, from a targeting perspective, obviously, like the things they were doing were kind of abusing the system and kind of um, farming it for data that wasn't intended for the customers uh, or any kind of public domain. But regardless, kind of um, like gathering that information, allowing uh, people to get to that was sort of um, a problem. And then um, kind of one of the biggest shifts in advertising, I think, was uh, when Facebook in, uh, kind of launched the, their dynamic advertising products, which essentially mean that um, you can be retargeted based on whatever product you've been looking at in any e-commerce store. And kind of the genius uh, behind that is that that means that Facebook gets real-time data of every single product you look at um, and its category in every single e-commerce store out there. So the moment you take a look at a pair of Timberland shoes uh, in uh, eBay, they're going to know and uh, they're able to target you with um, another 28 pairs of hiking boots from uh, 28 other different stores. <laughs> yes, I do all my shopping in private mode and it helps a little bit, but my God. So... Yeah, Cam Cambridge Analytica, I think, opened up a lot of people's eyes. And then on the, is it, on the flip side, is it the algorithms, are they the same sort of thing where, you know, Facebook has been implicated and other social media company as well, uh, companies, you know, they're not just targeting you with ads, but they're also directing you um, towards certain avenues based on what you're reading and, you know, your newsfeed and, you know, it's, it's been, they've been accused and I think it's been pretty well documented that they're capable of sort of radicalizing people um, in a very short amount of time or, or they're capable of spreading misinformation like in the 2016 uh, U.S. election for president. Is, is that the same sort of, is, is that the other side of this coin? Is that the same sort of thing that's going on? Yeah, I think there's uh, like there's a big impact, obviously, from uh, the advertising uh, kind of monetization perspective in the sense that what Facebook and co, Twitter as well, uh, TikTok, what they're trying to do is they want to maximize uh, the amount of um, feed scrolling that you're doing and the time you're spending in the application so they can show as many ads as they can and they get paid uh, on a per impression basis. So the more eyeballs, essentially, the more revenue. And that then means that uh, all of the algorithms that they use for figuring out what to show you are geared towards essentially whatever makes you spend the most time on uh, those applications. And then kind of with that being the primary goal, some of the sort of uh, unforeseen uh, side effects are then that either you end up being sort of in an echo chamber where you end up uh, looking at more content because you agree with all of it, and then you end up being in like an anti-vaxxer bubble, for example. Or it can be that some content becomes trending because uh, there's a lot of controversy around it, and the algo is like, okay, this seems like a great thing to keep people engaged. 
and that keeps kind of being surfaced up. The so outrage machine. So kind of right. made enough attention to the sort of side effects of um, optimizing for pure engagement, so to say. Yeah, yeah, it's really, um, it's insidious. And like, if I'm scrolling through Instagram and I pause on one thing, I know that in, my, in the bottom of my feed, there's going to be three more of those things. And it's just the, the real-time nature of it is really uh, rather creepy, in my opinion. Um, what... So, okay, after the startup for five years, um, what, did, what did you decide to do next? Um, yeah, so at that point, uh, I was based in New York and started uh, thinking of what would be kind of um, the next move. Started talking with uh, Tommy, who's my business side co-founder. He was at that point in Karachi in Pakistan um, in the leadership team of one Alibaba-owned e-commerce company. He's a former investment banker, was at Goldman Sachs in London and New York before that, and been also kind of around the world. And he was also thinking that maybe now is kind of the time to like give up on the corporate path and uh, let's move back to Finland and start figuring out what to do. And initially uh, we were thinking that um, like we started solving a bit of a smaller problem uh, with just kind of uh, creator monetization with the idea that if creators are able to share their genuine favorite products um, and places um, in a separate platform, they could monetize kind of um, in a better way instead of essentially kind of shilling products that they don't even believe in just for the revenue. And then turned out that actually they are very happy to shill products that they don't believe in, in most cases. So we were maybe a little bit too naive on um, that premise and pretty quickly ended up uh, focusing on kind of the web free side of things and solving kind of the much bigger issue of how do we get to a point where people actually own their social graphs, can control what they see and are not, for example, accidentally radicalized by their social feed. Yeah, so what, um, what year are we up into here? And, and I'm assuming crypto had kind of come on the scene. Yeah, so when we first started, uh, that was kind of before the like, big uh, sort of boom that happened uh, in the last couple of years. Um, but then very quickly kind of that growth started and we started realizing that now it's actually probably going to be the first time uh, in kind of um, the life cycle of uh, crypto where there's kind of enough of a mainstream adoption that something like uh, kind of Web3 and blockchain-based social is realistic. Like there obviously were a few attempts already, like even five years back. But I think kind of crypto in general has been too fringe at that point to be viable yet for something like a social platform. So we think that now is kind of a very good time for that and for the last around... Um, year and a half now we've been kind of actively building in the space yeah when was the first time you remember coming across crypto was it was it bitcoin or was it after that yeah i like uh, very sorely remember the first time uh, i was in a google cafeteria in dublin and one of uh, their engineers uh, sat across me and was uh, foaming at the mouth explaining about this new cool thing called bitcoin <laughs> that he had just been buying and it had just been going up from 50 cents to one dollar and he had made so much money uh, by buying those bitcoins and i was like yeah sounds uh, like a waste of time but <laughs> good for you and um lo looking back at that if i had put my 10 euro lunch money on uh, 10 bitcoins at that point could have been a pretty good investment uh, long term but yeah. uh, always good to have hindsight it is and I, yeah i'm in the same bucket i didn't get it for years i thought how could something made of ones and zeros have a value um so you kind of dismissed it at first, like I did. What what brought you around? 
I think kind of after like multiple rounds initially, like uh, kind of talking of when I bought my first crypto, like multiple rounds of, well, I guess I missed that rally and that rally and that rally. Uh, then eventually it was like, okay, I well, think also that crash coming. and that crash and that crash yeah. too. It was, it was a roller coaster there for a long time. Yeah. And I think we'll always be, if you look at kind of uh, like there hasn't been a very easy moment in the industry, but yeah, that was like two years ago or so when I started kind of diving into it. And I think it's actually been uh, kind of very beneficial for us to come a little bit from the outside. So like Tommy has been looking at the, the space for a bit longer. And one of our tech co-founders actually founded his first Bitcoin exchange in 2012 already. So he has been kind of uh, very OG in the industry. But for me as a CEO, it's actually easier to kind of come from a bit of like a layman perspective into it. Because then it helps me also kind of cut through a lot of the kind of technical um, stuff that just makes things complicated for the sake of uh, decentralization or the sake of cryptography, instead of looking at like what actually is kind of mainstream adaptable. Yeah. 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 It's it's interesting. We need all of those folks, I think, in the space, of course, right? You need the folks that care about decentralization or making that a reality, but then you need people who are like, what do people want to use this for? So I think those are absolutely two important parts. Was there um, a certain protocol or project that really opened you up to this? Or was it Ethereum in general or another smart contract platform? I think, yeah, Ethereum overall is kind of um, sort of the first genuinely interesting thing in crypto, kind of uh, becoming programmable and starting to enable a lot more than just having sort of um, like a jointly agreed uh, currency of sorts, um, and that's obviously kind of what um, has been unlocking a lot of uh, sort of the social graph uh, possibilities and NFTs and things like that, where I think kind of um, like, well, the reason we're building in social is that I believe that kind of social will be kind of the biggest impact on the world um, out of the blockchain utilizations. And why, why do you think that? Um, I think overall, if you look at kind of uh, investments um, and um, money and things like that. Um, it's a fairly small amount of the people in the world who will ever have investable assets or interested in kind of um, finance, whether it's decentralized or centralized. And at the same time, kind of governments have strong enough interests uh, to kind of keep centralizing currencies that um, I'm quite skeptical that we're getting into a future where sort of um, like instead of uh, like central bank run money, there would be sort of um, like fully decentralized currencies is kind of the main usage. But then at the same time, um, kind of what NFTs do is essentially like give you sort of uh, like verifiable ownership of anything you have online. And for most people, the most valuable thing they'll ever own online is their social life. So it's their kind of Facebook followers, their Twitter followers, and the stuff that they've spent 10 years building in the various applications for the first time, they can actually kind of start getting ownership and portability and interoperability and uncensorability of that data. And I think kind of uh, that's where like a lot of very big changes can actually happen in the world as well. Okay. And I read a funny little thing about you. I think it was you. I'm not sure if it was your co-founder, but was it you who your grandmother got kicked off of Facebook? Yeah, that was uh, something that happened. Can you tell uh, us that story? <laughs> yeah. So a while back, um, like when we were still thinking of like what to actually do, do with favor um got a call from my grandmother who was super upset that uh, like facebook and instagram had been uh, kicking her off the platform for accidentally changing her age to 12 
as they have a 13-year minimum limit. <laughs> and she's in her 70s, and she's been um, on the platform for probably more than 12 years. So not a very uh, kind of cool move from them. And obviously, I tried to help her, like, okay, send them uh, a copy of your passport and send them your magazine subscriptions. And they kept declining, like, no, you have a different first name um, on your Facebook profile than you do on your passport. So can't really help you. And she ended up losing uh, over 10 years of grandchildren's photos, uh, discussions, group memberships, uh, and pretty much uh, kind of everything she'd been doing, um, especially during COVID, where kind of um, like retired people were told to stay at home because they're at risk. And like uh, online social media was really kind of majority of your social life. Yeah, yeah, it was a lifeline at that point. Um, wow, that's crazy. And, and that's exactly like what you were saying was that you can, you know, you're at the whim of this centralized entity like Facebook, and they can take away what you've been building for years. Um, so how did that spark you? Was that sort of the spark of favor? Or where were you at that point? And when that happened to your grandmother? Yeah, that was one of the kind of key things. So obviously kind of the entire sort of background in uh, Web2 uh, was already sort of uh, building up a lot of the realizations that uh, there has to be sort of a better way of doing things. Um, and then overall kind of one of the favorite things um, about building uh, and working at Smartly, uh, which was the ad tech company, was that we had a policy where we never had any contract lock-ins for people. So a lot of, especially American SaaS companies, like to lock you in for a year minimum every time you kind of sign a contract. Hmm. But we decided that we don't want to work with people kind of against their will. So rather kind of uh, start with the point that you can at any point tell us that you're quitting and we stop billing you pretty much instantly. And that sort of liberated us to really design things based on what the customers are looking for and really kind of take their concerns seriously. And that ended up making the company very successful and kind of becoming a global market leader. And I think what we're trying to replicate here is kind of the first premise of um, smart of uh, what the favor is doing is that we give control to the users. So by choosing the Lens protocol, we allow people to take control over their own uh, stuff and they can take it away from favor if they don't like it. Yeah. And then from there, we can start building on like if a user has control, they can go anywhere they want. How do we make them stay with us? Because we are so good, not because we force them to stay with us. Yeah, that's great. Um, and let's let, yeah, let's dive into that. So you mentioned the Lens Protocol. Um, that's a project on Ave, and maybe you could, for listeners, um, this is since it's rather new. Maybe you could just give a, an overview of what Lens Protocol does and why it's different. Yeah. So um, Lens has been around for a little bit over a year now, or I guess on mainnet around uh, ten and a half months, um, and essentially uh, built on Polygon. It's a smart contract-based social graph where uh, your profile is an NFT and your follower relationships and your posts and things like that go on chain and are stored in a way where um, kind of anybody can access those uh, through another platform and they're also interoperable between the platforms. So let's say uh, you make a post on Favor and you've connected a Lens profile. It will also go on Orb and Lenster and a bunch of other apps that have already been built on the kind of Lens ecosystem and the other way around. And then if, let's say, you don't like what's happening on Favor, you can at any point go uh, and log into one of the other applications with that same NFT. And you have all your followers, you have all your content, and it's all kind of like choose your own experience. And I think that's kind of uh, like we were originally looking for 
something like this, realizing that we could, yes, build our own NFTs uh, for profiles, but that wouldn't really make it Web3. Because we think the Web3 is all about giving users that ownership. And the only way you have ownership is if you have interoperability. So otherwise we can give you a key, but if we have the only lock that controls that, uh, you're never going to be an actual owner. You're going to be renting that uh, whatever platform uh, you're having. Whereas if you can take your key into a bunch of different doors, so in this case, you can take your NFT into a dozen different platforms, then that means you actually start owning things. Right. Yeah, it's all portable, right? So how does the Lens Protocol achieve this? It's, it's a decentralized protocol, correct? And like, can you explain just how that works compared to something like a Twitter or a Facebook? Yeah, so it's obviously at this point kind of uh, partially centralized in the sense that uh, the team at Aave or like Lens is now a spin-off of Aave uh, is building uh, kind of those smart contracts, uh, but those are obviously uh, kind of like readable by anyone. They're open source. You could technically copy Lens and build your own version of it, but also kind of all of the data is uh, then openly available on chain. And uh, you can kind of, uh, like anybody can build new applications on top of Lens, anybody can go read that post data directly from uh, the blockchain and doesn't actually, for example, even have to use the APIs that uh, Lens is providing. So that way they're kind of um, giving uh, a lot more flexibility for the developers to build on top of that, but also a lot more control for the users uh, over kind of where they go with that um, and how they use it. And at the same time, it's very easy uh, from a user perspective, so you don't have to uh, do a lot of like complicated onboarding steps. If you have a crypto wallet already and you've been whitelisted for Lens, you just go and mint a profile NFT uh, in their portal, and then you can just go and essentially log in with that wallet in any of uh, the compatible platforms, and then you're in. So essentially, after figuring out what it means to mint an NFT, um, you're going to be all set for uh, kind of uh, logging into any places with it. Okay. And I think, as you said, the underlying blockchain here is um, Polygon. Yep. So then, okay, so then Lens Protocol sits on top of Polygon, and then Lens allows applications like yours, like Favor, to exist in that, in that world. And like you said, everything's portable, and, and you're in control of, of what you're doing, and you can take things with you as, as you see fit. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, so then, I know um, you. Uh, I was introduced to you by Jeff Goldberg, um, who has had a lot of trouble with Twitter over the years. He's been pointing out how um, fake accounts and bots and, and other things are swaying uh, public opinion, like in Iran, um, with uh, some of the XRP Ripple uh, Army stuff and, and a lot of other places. And, he was kicked off of Twitter for several years. He's now back on, but I, I think he got, I'm not sure if he, what his status is now, because I heard last that he's had gotten kicked off again. But that's like, so that's the, that's the antithesis of favor, right? That's, that's what you guys are trying to solve here. And, and the blockchain aspect of it and the Web3 aspect of it gives favor users, for example, this, this ability um, to, own basically all the stuff that they're putting out into the world on the net, right? Yeah. And obviously kind of uh, like no platform can in reality be kind of fully uncensored or uncensorable because there's legislation, there's app store guidelines and a bunch of other things that kind of require apps to regulate. 
but the big difference here is that if Twitter bans you, then your entire Twitter social graph remains with them, and kind of uh, you need to build from scratch. But if, uh, let's say, Favor bans you, then um, you can just go to any of the other applications. And obviously, if you're behaving like a complete douchebag, they're probably going to be banning you eventually as well. But we kind of like to use the metaphor where in Web3, it's more about uh, kind of um, like it's very similar to a nightclub as an analogy. So kind of uh, for a nightclub to be enjoyable for people, it means that those who behave badly enough should be kicked out of there so that the other people will have fun in there. But at the same time, uh, if you end up kicked out of one nightclub for one rowdy night, it doesn't mean that you're banned from uh, all nightclubs and seeing your friends. But it's typically kind of um, like a in, like kind of restricted incident in that sense. And that means that every nightclub can choose their customers. Similarly, every social front end can choose their customers. But you can actually kind of keep your connections, keep your content and go elsewhere uh, where you might be more appreciated. So I think with that, we are kind of forced to achieve a balance where if we are kind of too overzealous on centering things, then people will go elsewhere. And also if we are kind of too lenient, um, and there ends up being a bunch of uh, hate speech or uh, illegal content or whatnot, then I think the same would happen again, because people are not happy with uh, the baseline. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's funny, uh, before all this, there wasn't really another option for Twitter, right? That was kind of the only game in town um, for that kind of social uh, media interaction. What and how do you guys differ on the algorithmic side of things like the ad targeting that we were talking about and then the kind of propensity for echo chambers to be created where you're liking something and then the algorithm shows you more of that and you just get kind of trapped in a cycle. How, how are you guys approaching that part of the um, part of the issue? Yeah, those are obviously going to be kind of very tricky things to tackle and kind of um, like on the basis of it, obviously Web3 doesn't really solve those um, as a technology in any way. Uh, but what it does is kind of um, like with the premise of giving users control, it also means that the users get to choose uh, their own algorithm and choose their own ranking either uh, by favor allowing them choice or if we wouldn't allow them choice, they would go elsewhere to find kind of um, the ranking of their choice. So we don't really kind of have that sort of possibility even of like forcing people uh, to watch exactly what we want them to watch. Because if they're not happy with that, somebody else will offer them a better experience with all of that same datum. And kind of from there, we start again building um, the right solutions where, for example, for the censorship levels, we see that um, the way to do it is to give people choice between uh, sort of... Uh, give me a very family-friendly filtered experience uh, and all the way up to like don't censor anything that you don't legally have to. And I think with this we can again like go from uh, censoring for the lowest common denominator like Instagram is doing right now um, and Twitter to a certain extent and get to a point where uh, those people who want to have a bit more of a cushioned uh, family-friendly um, experience can get one and then those people who don't uh, are also not kind of um, victimized by other people's sensitivities uh, in that sense. And then for kind of the algos themselves, we think that um, like allowing people to kind of voluntarily give uh, feedback and kind of uh, like information for that, whether it's for the advertising or for um, kind of the content algo itself. Like one of the annoying things, as you mentioned earlier, is that like the moment you stay on 
one piece of content for too long, you keep seeing uh, a bunch of similar ones afterwards, and there's no way of uh, telling Instagram or Twitter, like, stop showing me this stuff. Yeah. Or you can try to report every ad, but it doesn't really work super efficiently. So I think that's one where kind of just give people control of saying, like, I don't want to see this kind of stuff anymore. Give me more of that stuff. And same for the advertising. Uh, you can either tell us, like, okay, don't track me in any way. You're going to show me some very irrelevant ads, but I'm going to be privacy focused on this. Or if you don't want to see ads at all, pay us a certain amount of points each month um, for kind of the premium version where you get rid of them completely. Or then if you actually want to kind of engage with the advertising and you appreciate getting relevant ads, then you can kind of voluntarily give us information about uh, what you're interested in, what you'd like to be seeing, and then we can actually reward you for that. So we can essentially do a revenue share um, kind of set up where you get some of the favor points that become later favor tokens uh, for kind of participating in this economy. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's fascinating um, because, yeah, it's, it's the user control that you don't have on platforms today. And as any parent knows, I've tried to go in there into YouTube and try to like, you know, put on parental controls and it's just, it's a joke, you know, like there, there's absolutely no, um, I haven't any, anyway found any way to fine tune it in any way, shape or form. So it's either like everything gets banned and my kids aren't be able to watch the things they want, but then I can't protect them from things that I don't want them to see. So I really appreciate how the, like the granularity that you guys are taking with that. Um, and you mentioned the, the favorite token. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. What what's the idea there, and um, how does how does that work? Yeah, so kind of uh, one of the key parts that we're building into favor is obviously kind of um, like how to reward the right people for the value that they're creating, and essentially kind of share the value. And we see that tokens are actually kind of bringing up uh, like a couple of very unique opportunities compared to sort of uh, the like fiat-based previous um, experiences, one of them obviously being that tokens are kind of global. So uh, there's a lot of different off-ramp solutions all around the world that are kind of already in place, which means that if we, for example, uh, already now we have a very global audience where we have a big market in Turkey, big market in Japan, uh, Europe, US, um, Vietnam, and a bunch of other markets out there. And it would be virtually impossible to come up with a revenue share model where we can kind of uh, like fairly and legally give people uh, kind of revenue share uh, on a global setup, whereas tokens kind of um, are abstracting a lot of that. And also the other uh, front is that kind of the sort of gold star problem with a social network is obviously a massive one where in the initial phases, uh, it's way less fun to be on a social app because you have less people there, there's less content, it's less relevant. Etc. Yeah, but so the, the tokens time, are an incentive there to get people yeah. to join. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah, if you're kind of uh, an early uh, participant in a token project, that's usually a very lucrative position to be in. So we see that it's only fair that those people who come in early and help us give that crucial feedback and are with us kind of uh, in that early uh, like onset of the business, they should be rewarded with um, kind of a lot bigger shares than those who come in when it's actually popular and there's millions of users already in the platform. And I think okay. tokens are a great way to also do that where we are going to be kind of giving out a sizable share of the favorite tokens uh, to the actual community. And do, do your tokens have a value outside of the favor ecosystem or are they just something that users use um, internally? 
Yeah, so right now, kind of uh, to be also compliant with the App Store guidelines that Apple has been recently rolling out, uh, we have sort of an off-chain system inside the app called Favor Points, where uh, you can already earn those points, but those have no value outside of the application. But then once uh, this summer we are rolling out um, the actual tokens and listing those, uh, then users will be able to uh, kind of, upon certain qualifications, they will be able to cash out shares of uh, their favor points into tokens. And at that point, obviously, they become liquid and you can kind of um, sell them in the market. And then on the other front, um, to acquire favor points, if you actually want to, for example, grow your account or subscribe to premium content or get rid of the ads, as mentioned, uh, you can either do in-app purchases and pay Apple 30% uh, to keep them happy. Or then to avoid that Apple tax, you can go and kind of acquire the tokens from the market and transfer them into the points in the application. So it's obviously not a perfect system. There's a bit of friction there, but we see that it's much less friction than, for example, if we force people to go to an exchange as the first step of their user experience, um, like some of the previous apps have done. Yeah, d does that piss you off that you have to go through Apple and like the Android store where that is exactly the thing we're talking about, where that's the problem, it's like a centralized gatekeeper? Yeah, I think it's obviously kind of um, like Apple is now very much uh, sort of um, like digging their own hole uh, by kind of, again, pointing out what the problems of fully like monopolized and centralized systems are where they are actually kind of uh, able to tell people that unless you give us 30% of the gas fees, you're not able to do crypto yeah. on our application ecosystem. Can you and these are obviously things that are kind of not really helping the consumers, not really helping innovation. And uh, long term, I think not even helping Apple because um, I think there will be kind of a lot of creativity trying to figure out ways around that. And there's already some lawsuits trying to kind of uh, force Apple uh, to kind of allow either side loaded apps or kind of separate app stores. So we'll see kind of where that goes. But yeah, it's a frustrating um, kind of limitation right now. Yeah. And then are you worried um, once your token kind of is in the secondary markets that that it might run afoul of like the US, um, the SEC, might, they might say it's a security or how are you guys thinking about that going forward? Yeah, so obviously the US market right now is very tricky when it comes to kind of the regulatory side of things. And uh, like uh, currently what our lawyers are telling us kind of don't sell uh, tokens uh, to uh, Americans is pretty much kind of what every lawyer around there is going to be saying. And kind of, obviously, we don't have any entities in the U.S., uh, so our tokens are not going to be released from there. Uh, Favor doesn't have a U.S. entity right now. So from that perspective, we should be covered. But obviously, kind of, uh, I'm very much rooting for the U.S. to also come up with sort of, um, like, sensible regulation going forward. Where, yeah. for example, Switzerland has a pretty nice, uh, solid uh, kind of uh, listing of, like, this is what's the criteria for a utility token, this is what a security token is, this is what a payment token is. Right. And only kind of, I think, through fair regulation, we can actually avoid things like the uh, FTX disaster, where people end up kind of going to an unregulated Bahamian exchange just because there are no properly regulated American exchanges. Right. Yeah, no, we're all definitely hoping for sensible regulation here in the United States as well. Yeah, so I think I think I saw you have about 140,000 users already. Yeah, I think the most recent number is around 180,000, so it keeps growing um, okay. quite nicely right now. Around 90,000 of those are weekly active, 45,000 daily. So 
where we, yeah, I was going to ask you what what insights are you getting from your users in terms of like how they like to permission their privacy or how much ads they want to see? Like what what's the um, is there a is there a picture of like developing? Yeah, I think we we have an obviously kind of um, like with this early audience, we haven't really focused on the monetization from the advertising perspective too much yet. But we've, of course, been kind of asking our community for feedback on the various plans. And I think even um, like there, of course, I think there are those sort of like Web3, um, I don't know, fundamentalists, but kind of like Web3 fans who think that kind of Web3 should mean no ads and Web3 should mean no censorship which are, well, technically not correlating with each other, uh, but kind of when we've discussed that through with them and explained that how we see it is that kind of uh, like ads and censorship are going to be needed because uh, most people are not willing to pay for content online. They prefer a free option. And until now, kind of advertising has really been that only viable kind of long-term free option for doing things um, online. And then at the same time, if you don't censor anything, like anybody can go on a Tor browser and go into the dark web and see what happens if nobody censors anything. Mm -hmm. And like things will get very dark uh, eventually um, at that point. So I think kind of having the dialogue has helped us also kind of shape what we're doing and kind of uh, how we build things that uh, the users are comfortable with going forward and kind of what are the choices we want to give them. Yeah. We've talked a lot about Facebook. Um, what did you make about Meta, uh, or what do you make of it, and, and what they're trying to do in the sort of quote-unquote Web3 world? Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, one big ruse, pretty much, uh, what's been going on, where kind of, um, if you think about the Facebook metaverse and pretty much anything that kind of the like Facebook meta entity has been doing, None of it is actually Web3 in pretty much any way. If we kind of think of Web3 as that ownership economy where users start getting control. So the Facebook uh, metaverse essentially is just a 3D version of uh, Facebook where you still get uh, targeted with ad billboards uh, based on your Facebook uh, information. And you don't actually own any of uh, the stuff and achievements that you do in there. So it's just essentially kind of a 3D game without uh, any, of the, any of the fun of a game. So I think kind of um, like it's pretty much doomed to fail in its current premise. At the same time, I think what they've been trying to do is kind of get everybody focused on uh, this kind of vision of the metaverse as kind of a 3D world where you're going to be running around um, in kind of a parallel universe just yeah. to kind of keep people away from realizing that what actually is happening and should be happening is giving people control over their graphs and their monetization and their kind of ownership and all that, which is the last thing that Facebook wants to do because um, that's going to be kind of draining a lot of their revenue. Yeah, I and I still find it, I don't know what the right word is, it's not shocking, but it was very interesting, the reaction um, to their plan to have a digital currency, right, embedded within Meta or Facebook. Um, I think that really woke up a lot of people uh, on the regulatory side around the world. And, and I think that might have been, you know, one of the earliest sort of wake up calls to that started the current regulatory environment we're in right now, because they could see, you know, the, like central banks and governments could see the threat, I think, of having something like 4 billion users all of a sudden have access to some digital currency that they had no control over even if it was something that would be, you know, entirely embedded within the Facebook ecosystem. Um, 
so it's kind of kind of odd but yeah i agree um i think they've just i just think they're just using the words you know and they're not actually doing anything about actually building web3 or decentralized um applications um so you know you've been you've been in this for a while and i was just curious like we're in a sort of a rough period right now but what what's been one of your favorite things or successes in um in in this in the crypto world and, and what you guys have been doing is there something that stands out to you yeah i think kind of uh like having been through this last year of kind of crash after crash after crash pretty much uh which hasn't made it easy to fundraise or build uh in kind of uh, the social space i think now um was amazing we were in east denver um like uh two weeks ago and for the first time uh been to like 14 conferences in the last year um and for the first time all of a sudden people start coming uh like to me like oh you're from favor like i'm a big fan i've been using your app for a while and all my friends in korea talk about it <laughs> and all of these kind of like random experiences of people telling me that hey i saw that favor shirt you're wearing and i've got your app and i like your app and i think that's sort of um like the first time it feels like uh there's like actually people out there obviously we've had uh, our amazing community online who keeps telling us that um kind of uh, they enjoy what we're doing but then for the first time kind of having like random real people in a conference um come to us and say that they're enjoying what we're doing and they believe in the vision that we have is i think like super um motivating and humbling and at the same time i think um kind of giving the first um, signs of actual product market fit uh, in this ecosystem as well. Because I think kind of the first thing that we need to do is we need to get crypto Twitter off Twitter. Uh, as long as they are remaining on the centralized uh, Web2 platforms, then I don't think kind of the industry has a like hope at all. And I think these are kind of the first steps, uh, like when the folks in crypto conferences are starting to recognize uh, what you're doing They've got their lens profiles. They've been unchaining themselves um, for social. I think that's kind of uh, a very kind of nice early start after uh, kind of going through all of these crashes and all the investors telling us that they don't really know if social is going to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Um, yeah, I, I know like when people come up to me randomly and say they love my book, you know, it's really um, just, it's just a great feeling to know that somebody out there, you know, that you have no idea, no connection to is giving you that positive feedback it's really nice um so what's been one of the more disappointing things then you know if that's the highlight what what's um something that or or what would you say is like one of the biggest setbacks we've faced recently i think overall kind of um it's been uh very sad to see sort of um like all of uh, the crashes happening with uh, like Terra Luna and uh, FTX and um, now recently kind of crypto friendly banking and all that, because all that is just kind of like uh, in most cases, uh, if you look at FTX, for example, it wasn't really about crypto in any way. It was about a fully centralized structure that just happened to uh, use crypto as the investment asset and then essentially embezzling those uh, funds for other use. So it's not something you could really blame kind of uh, blockchain or crypto on. But then at the same time, every time these things happen, um, like all the mainstream media gets another excuse to write about how bad crypto is and how it's all about scams. And uh, it just kind of takes back the actual uh, kind of user sentiment and makes people focus on the wrong things. So I think those have been kind of 
frustrating moments they've also been each time kind of uh, setting back our fundraise uh, where now we're in a very comfortable position where uh, we've raised a decent amount of money and have a very oversubscribed funding round but for a year it was kind of um, like swimming kind of um, across the current where every now and then you get some traction and then all of a sudden the market crashes again yeah. so that's been kind of um, not not an easy year in that sense yeah for sure um and then I think you alluded to this, but do you think, uh, it sounds like you're getting traction, you're growing pretty quickly. Is there something different about now or what, what's the larger context here that people should think about um, in terms of getting you know, more people into actually Web3 projects that are decentralized and you know, uh, have, have so much more user choice? Is, is there something about now or what's the bigger picture? Yeah, I think kind of, um... It's a combination of sort of multiple sort of tracks happening at the same time, where obviously one of them is that kind of all of uh, the social graphs um, or kind of Web3 social graphs right now, so Lens Protocol, CyberConnect, Farcaster, for example, are still in like alpha or beta, essentially, where they're either kind of heavily gating their access or kind of, in other ways, uh, in a very early stage. Uh, so it's kind of been um, also waiting for that technology to mature before it's even like technologically possible to start scaling beyond the current like hundreds of thousands of users that the on-chain uh, kind of graphs have. At the same time, I think there's been more and more sort of realization, especially inside kind of the crypto Twitter and the crypto industry, like more and more people are starting to realize like, hey, this actually makes sense. Like uh, this is actually a very smart use of NFTs uh, to bring my social profile into a portable decentralized format um and the things that that kind of unlocks and then at the same time there's more and more kind of the big research companies like Messari and binance research are kind of quoting that web3 social is uh, sort of one of the big themes for this year which has then meant that a lot more people are also waking up to like hey if this is going to be big then i should probably be part of it and uh like the demand for lens profiles has been crazy like the floor price for uh somebody's random username of a lens profile NFT has been like $160 or something on OpenSea recently. Yeah, well, I just got uh, access to Lens Protocol. I haven't set it up yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to doing that and looking forward to checking out Favor um, once, once I'm on there. Um, well, Jonathan, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you for um, being so open with us and sharing your story. Um, can you tell people can they get on favor right now or t tell them what, what the process is there and then tell tell everyone how they can uh, find you on social media or where, wherever you like to be um, contacted? Yes. Uh, so uh, right now, kind of, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of the platforms themselves are gated for whitelisting. But what favor has done is that we have sort of our own off-chain social graph that allows anybody to enter. So you can download the favor app from the App Store or Play Store, sign in with your or sign up with your email and password. Um, and even without a wallet, you actually start getting access to all the content on Lens. Uh, you can start following people there and building your own kind of social graph and feed. We also recently rolled out CyberConnect, which is the other big social graph. Um, so you can connect your CyberConnect uh, account into favor as well. And then if you already, um, like Matt, have been getting your whitelisting for Lens, you can connect that. And then after that, all your stuff starts going on chain. If not, uh, we are doing multiple whitelisting campaigns with Lens um, and the other uh, social graphs um, as well. So you might already be qualifying for some of those 
and we work hard to kind of um, get as many people in there as possible while at the same time kind of protecting the graphs from all the like squatters and bots and uh, the bad actors who are just trying to get free accounts that they can sell on OpenSea. So it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. That sounds like but, a big job right there. Yeah, not, not easy, but um, in any case, everybody's welcome to join Favor already. Uh, it asks for an invite code, but if you read all the way through that page, there's a link at the bottom saying, I don't have an invite code, so you can also skip that. Oh, nice. A bit of a reading comprehension test, but um, it should work if you read through the five lines of text. <laughs> all right. And um, where, where do you, uh, if people want to get in touch, how do they find you? Yeah, so on Twitter, if you're still in the Web2 world, uh, go follow at Favor app, uh, P-H-A-V-E-R. Um, and uh, we have a very active Twitter and active community there. Uh, our Discord and uh, Telegram links can also be found from there. And then obviously kind of join Favor and uh, start following um, me. I'm Jonathan.Lens uh, there, so J-O-O-N-A-T-A-N. Um, and uh, you can usually find me somewhere in the top 10 uh, trending users because um, people somehow um, think that following me gets them more tokens, I guess. <laughs> All right. Not the promise, but you can always try. Right, right. All right, you heard it here. Uh, go go get on favor and help support this um, great endeavor to make social media more um, responsive to users and more uh, manageable and just a better overall experience where you're not being the product anymore. Um, Jonathan, thank you again so much um, for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you have uh, good luck in everything that you guys are doing. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Mm -hmm.